Last week, we were thinking about the big Advent theme of the promise and the prophet Jeremiah, who spoke into his world uh, of invasion and of suffering and of deportation and of exile, and spoke to people about the need to hold on to the promise, the promise that God had given to Abraham and Sarah, and that would come into being with the birth of a Messiah. And we talked last week about how that that promise has begun to be fulfilled, but that the call to us 21 centuries later is to keep holding on to that promise because it's not completely finished. <laughs> Hello, Smiths. <laughs> I always have, do you ever notice, sorry, this isn't about you, right? So don't be embarrassed, but it is really. You know the way when there's a meeting on and somebody suddenly needs to answer their phone or, or get out to the toilet or something and they sort of tiptoe out and you kind of, you'd be better just standing up and walking out because we're all, no matter what you're doing, we're all watching you. So thanks for trying to get in. That's a, <laughs> As if we couldn't see you. Uh, but, yeah, anyway. So, uh, Smith's Jeremiah. Yeah, let's just switch back. Uh, this great big, uh, this great big theme of clinging and holding on to the promise. And like the Israelites are encouraged to do, of retelling the story. Passing it on, keeping it alive, keeping it out there. And of course, Christmas is one of those festivals in the year when we get to tell our story. To show it. Let people see it. Hear it. Well, today there's another big theme. And it's picked up by another prophet. And we'll come to him in a minute. But it's about the voice of one calling in the desert. And the very, the very theme itself immediately puts thoughts in our heads. Somebody out in the desert shouting help. Alone. No one listening. Uh, far from the crowds. And that's this prophetic theme for the second Sunday of Advent, is what is it like to be crying out in the desert when nobody appears to hear? Now, reference back to the sermon, or to the creed. When we announce what we believe, I don't know if any of you remember, I do remember this one Sunday uh, when Tom Keatley was leading the service, and we came to the creed, and he said, now we're going to do the most difficult thing you'll ever do. We're going to say all the things we believe. So he said, it starts off with, I believe in God the Father. And he said, most people get that, but as you get near the end, it gets harder and harder to believe it. And I thought, only Tom could get away with that. Uh, but so, And sure enough, so he said, let's start with gusto. And sure enough, as he predicted, it got quieter and quieter as you got to all the complicated, difficult things that we believe. So here are some of them, some of the big themes. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now there's an Advent theme. As we wait for the promise to be fulfilled, for the promise that began in the birth of Christ, that continued through his death and resurrection, Ascension, the giving of the Holy Spirit, and now we wait for the fulfillment. He will come again. Sometimes the big themes are hard for us to hold on to. Because I'm imagining even in a church service like this, isn't your head already filled with things like... um, Will the dinner be all right? Who's coming around later? I've got to get that thing done for work for tomorrow. Oh, I hope I can get an hour. I need to get milk on the way home. Remind me to do that. And 
It was frosty this morning. Will she get a bag of salt for the driveway? You know, our minds are filled with all the details of life. Do you remember these three boys? I haven't shown you the picture before, but I have used them as an illustration because one of them thinks he's just cracking rocks open and the other one thinks he's he's making building blocks and the other one thinks he's building a cathedral. See the details at one end and the big picture at the other end. And I found another great picture. I think she knows all three, (laughs) right? We're breaking rocks. We're making bricks to build. We're building a cathedral to the glory of God. So let me fire you forwards. I've chopped a big... Well, this, remember last week I started to show you this timeline with all these great big things on it. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph in Egypt, the slavery for centuries. Moses rises, the people leave, walk through the Dead Sea. They head for the promised land. Joshua leads them. And then with this long period of time when the judges sort of roamed around trying to keep everybody following God. And that eventually led to the, the monarchy with Saul, David, Solomon. And then the whole things split in two because Solomon's two boys argued about who ought to be in charge and they ended up splitting in two. Those are great big overviews of centuries and centuries of life in Israel or life for the Israelites or the Hebrews. But in the midst of it all, there are people like you and me. And there's a book not written by her but written about her in the Old Testament during that period that They were in the promised land, but before they had any kings or any politics or anything like that. A woman called Ruth. Now, Ruth comes from, do you see the the bottom half of Israel? There's a blue half at the top and there's the bottom half in the mustard color. Do you see over to the right on the other side of the Dead Sea, the kingdom of Moab? Ruth comes from Moab. She's not a Hebrew. She's not an Israelite. And uh, her husband has died and her mother-in-law is from uh, is a Hebrew, is from the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of Israel. And uh, Ruth goes with her mother-in-law back into Israel. And she's completely unknown. She's also not one of the crowd, right? She's from outside, so to speak. And she, they end up living uh, in Bethlehem, which is just to the left of Jerusalem. You can see in that mustard-colored bit. And uh, she ends up uh, on the farm of a man called Boaz. Right Now, here's where the details matter. Because Boaz is faithful to God. And Boaz is following one of the customs of the Israelite farming community. And one of their customs is that they don't harvest or reap right out to the hedges. They always leave a bit at the ends of all of their fields. And that is left so that foreigners or outsiders or people whose food supply is bad can actually harvest around the edge of the fields. Now that's a detail of life that Boaz is carefully keeping. And Ruth is able to go around the edges of Boaz's fields and uh, pick corn and whatever fruit, whatever other things there are. And she's able to survive along with her mother-in-law. But, and it's a good story. It's the stuff of TV series, really. Um, her and Boaz become an item, right? <laughs> there is a story to all of that, but we don't have time to go into all of that. And uh, they end up married. Now, 
Again, this is just people being faithful uh, to the things that they have to do in their normal lives. Then you jump forwards in the Bible to Matthew chapter 1, and you can't read a word of that, so you can't, and that's deliberate. That's the whole of the chapter, and it's the genealogy uh, right at the bottom right. It says, Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And top left, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. So in between is all the list of family members, all the way down from Abraham to Jesus. Now let's close in a little bit. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. Now, do you see how the two worlds of the detail of our lives, I'm just chopping bits off rocks. To, well, I think we're building a cathedral. That Boaz was just leaving grain and corn and apples and olives at the edges of his fields the way they knew they were supposed to to support other people in need. And he ends up, and his wife Ruth, end up as the great-grandparents of King David. Now, that wasn't a plan. They hadn't planned that. Uh, They knew nothing about that. They were just being faithful and knocking the bits off the rocks so the cathedral gets built. I think that's an incredible story. And Ruth, therefore, gets a whole book in the Bible all about her. So say we jump back to where the, the kingdom split because we need to get to today's prophet. Uh, and then the unthinkable happened. The northern part of the kingdom was invaded by the Assyrian Empire, which was to the north of Israel. And uh, that was just horror to them. But the crowd in the southern half, uh, although terrified, they kind of got on with life. They still had Jerusalem and the temple and all those bits of Israel were still theirs. Now, I'm going to get rid of that top line so because we need a bit more detail on this. The unspeakable happens to the southern half because Babylon, which is the next empire past Assyria, takes over Assyria, Israel, and Judah. And then you can see just to the left of the 600 first deportation where they start to take all the healthy young men, young women, all the talented people off into Babylon to use them to run their farms, their businesses, the agriculture, the mining, the administration and everything. And the whole Israel thing is destroyed, temple destroyed, the walls of Jerusalem knocked down, all the people with energy removed from it. And it was into that. Do you see the wee blue names? Those are the prophets who were speaking at these different times. Jeremiah last week was our prophet, uh, still in Israel. But as a young man, was still living there before he was old enough to be transported, I suppose. And the whole place has been destroyed. And that's when he starts to preach and speak and write about, hold on to the promise. Don't let go of the promise. No matter how much we're scattered, no matter how much everything is destroyed, hold on to the promise. And most of Israel is now living in Babylon. Now, does anybody know the most famous psalm or song written about Babylon? Boney M. Okay. Boney M. Originally, it was Psalm 137, right? By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord 
while in a foreign land. Have you been humming the tune even as we're talking about it? Wow. It's very familiar. Makes you wonder, why did a pop group make a song out of that? What were they? What was capturing their imaginations as they wrote this? So that's when that was all happening and Jeremiah was speaking to the people now spread across the known world. Don't forget the promise. Seventy years later, an even more unspeakable and unthinkable happens. The Persian Empire, which eventually stretched from the borders of India, away over in the east, all the way to Greece in the west. And like Israel and Judah, almost just disappear into this. This is, they, they are a nothing. They barely exist anymore in this enormous empire. But this enormous empire is so big now that the emperor uh, in Persia um, isn't quite so hard and down on everybody because he begins to realize that you can't control all of this. So he actually allows people to control their own bits of it. And that's where we get another couple of heroes appear. Ezra and Nehemiah. And of course, we've been through the story of Nehemiah almost verse by verse uh, during lockdown. Do you remember Nehemiah went to the emperor of Persia and asked for permission to go back and rebuild Jerusalem? And he went back and they did wonderful work. And Ezra had already gone back, had been given permission to go back and repair the temple. So you're kind of thinking, well, that's good news. Is it all starting to come together again? Remember that line that goes to the right will eventually have Jesus on the end of it, right? So we're in that a period of time, 500 years before the birth of Jesus, all this is unfolding. Well, they do rebuild the temple. They do rebuild the city walls. But the people don't come back. And that's a much bigger crisis than people coming back after COVID. Yeah? This is a nation not returning. The temple never becomes the lively full of God's presence place that it was intended to be back in the days of David. Well, not the temple wasn't there in David. During the days of Solomon, uh, when the temple was the center of life, the presence of God, almost tangible. It said, uh, and I think it's First Kings 8, that the temple was filled with smoke and it wasn't from people burning things. The presence of God filling the place. This was Israel at its greatest moments. It's now a shadow Temple half empty, hardly anything going on. The city, not filled with commerce and life and everything else. And people start to think, will it ever be the way it used to be? And maybe some of them even thinking, will it ever be the way it could be? And there's a voice starts to speak. Another young man, and this time called Malachi. And Malachi just means the messenger. And he starts to speak into this run-down emptiness of the temple and everything going wrong that could go wrong in Israel. Malachi starts to speak. And he starts to speak, taking on from Jeremiah's idea of the promise. And he starts to speak, and some of the words he says are today's Bible reading. 
God says, I will send my messenger, and he's probably not talking about Malachi, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple or come back to his temple. Because there's, this is what their people are longing for. When can Jerusalem and the temple be filled with life again? The, the Lord, the, suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant or the promise whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So Malachi is starting to speak something that will start to get the hearts racing a little bit. The Lord is going to come back to his temple. He will be like a refiner's fire or fuller's soap. Fuller's soap is a white, harsh soap that was used to take stains out of cloth. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have people who will bring offerings in righteousness. Now, I need to just point something out there. He will purify the Levites. The Levites are the tribe of Israel whose task was to look after the temple and the worship, the kind of religious life or the faith of the nation. And he says that the first thing that the one who comes back, the one who is coming will do, is purify the Levites and the worship. You get that? The faith, the spiritual dimension to this nation will be the first thing to be cleansed. Do you remember when this happened? When Jesus came to the temple? What did he do? He cleared it out. Because it was no longer the place of the presence of God. It was the place of cheating and making money and oppressing the poor and all those things. And Jesus came and said, I will take this place apart stone by stone and will replace it with a new temple. And of course they killed him that very week. He said, he promised, and this is the promise, that he will rebuild a temple and his presence will be alive in it. And this is it. And I don't mean this. This is it, us. We're the temple that he's speaking about. And as we grasp this big theme of Advent, that we're like a voice crying in the wilderness, The voice crying in the wilderness is the purified Levite, so to speak. The purified and reinvigorated, renewed, revived worship of God as the church. And for decades, for all of our lives, as we've been sitting here, we've been watching the church shrinking and dying all around us in our particular culture in Western Europe. God's desire is to revive it and renew it, to cleanse it like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he begins with the Levites. That's us. We're the Levites, the carriers of the worship and the prayer life. And when that is cleansed and renewed, then the people will be able to bring offerings again. We jump forward to Luke 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, the word of God came to John son of Zechariah in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. So go back to the creed where we sort of began. 
with those great big themes. Go back to whoever she was with the pneumatic drill on the rocks, building a cathedral. The people of God. And I want to develop this theme a wee bit more. I actually think the church of God at this point in time in history probably is in exile. We're a minority voice. We don't dictate the culture and the politics and how life is around us anymore. We did for many centuries, but we don't. We're like a voice of one calling in the desert. When we feel we're not being heard, when we feel we're the only person in work who seems to have faith, when we feel like we're the only person in our family who's still clinging to God, and what are all the rest doing? The voice of one calling in the desert is our call, is God's call to us to prepare the way for the Lord. And then let me jump back to another wee picture that we had. And the way that we continue to be the voice calling in the desert is to be like Ruth and Boaz. Be faithful to the small things. Continue to believe. Continue to worship. Continue to pray. Continue to be kind to our neighbors. Continue to forgive. Continue to hope. Continue to put food in the trolleys. Continue to be good to our neighbors. Because one day, King David will be born. Or the son of David will be born. The king will come back. To find a church that has been one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Okay, right. Yes, come on. Ah. So, Lord, we will not give up holding to the promise. And we're going to go on, no matter what the world around us looks like. To be faithful to the small things, so that you can be faithful to the big things.